So we've been going through biblical principles, and you can see those uh, in online and everything. And we've reached the topic of the atonement. Now, the atonement is very important. Now, uh, just like every topic that we go through, uh, it, we cannot you know, study it extensively within the setting that we have, just this one little 30-minute window. But my hope is, is that we have enough of it, enough saturation of it, that when we are uh, reading the scriptures or we're going through the books in an expository way and, and we come across propitiation or we come across reconciliation or atonement, uh, whatever the case may be, that you have a general understanding of what the atonement is and a general understanding of what it is not. Those are the things, the two things that we're going to look at today. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 11, this is the only place in all of the New Testament where the word, the English word atonement is used. Uh, right here. So Romans chapter 5, verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, what's interesting is that same Greek word is translated to reconcile in many other places in the New Testament. So, in this one place, they decided to translate it from, into the English as atonement. Now, what's even more interesting is the Old Testament is filled with the word atonement. Atonement is kippur. You've heard Yom Kippur. That's the day of atonement. So defined, we have over 90 times in the Old Testament, it's defined as kippur. Now if you look up that Hebrew word, it means a covering. The literal translation of kippur is the mercy seat. So in the New Testament, they use this Greek word, katalage, which means reconcile. So in other places in the New Testament, this word is translated as reconcile. So really, when you grasp the definition of the atonement, you're using both. It's literally the mercy seat has been applied. So you can say that that is a covering, and you can say that is for restoration. So it's both. When we think of the atonement, Think of it as the finished work of Christ on the cross, substitutionary, sacrificial lamb. Substitution. So when I think of the word atonement, the, the atonement of Christ, not only do I think of the covering and the restoration, which is in reconciliation. Reconciliation means to reconcile, to, to recover. Okay? To, that's what re reconcile means. And then covering is over here. Kippur. So you put these two definitions together, it's literal translation is mercy seat. But it, the action of the mercy seat, now if you remember in the Old Testament, that's where the priest, the high priest would go in and, and, and uh, sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. And there the wrath of God was appeased. Right? So it was a blood sacrifice, a blood covering. So when you think of the atonement, you think of the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Now, the thing about the atonement, it is central to Christianity. All of the Old Testament points to the atonement of Jesus Christ, and all of the New Testament points back to the cross 
of Jesus Christ in the atonement. It is a distinguishing feature of Christianity. There is no other religion where you have God becoming man, becoming a sacrifice and a substitute for the penalty of sins, resurrecting, and him doing that for all who would believe, for a multitude of people. It wasn't a one-on-one -on -one substitutionary death. It was a one-to-many. All those who would believe, my servant would justify many. And so that is a distinguishing feature of Christianity. Not only is it the theme of Christianity, it's distinguished. The atonement is distinguished in Christianity. It also vindicates the holiness and the justice of God. It reveals the character of God. So God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He's holy and he's just. He's both of those things. Holy means that he cannot be in the presence of sin. And just means he must punish for the penalty of sin. That there is a payment due for our sins, our individual sins. Um, so it reveals the atonement that, that God had to work the atonement and offer the blood sacrifice of himself through the atonement to pay sacrificial, uh, a sacrificial death and a substitutionary death. The very reason that he did that reveals the character of God that he is just, that he must punish sin, that there was no other way around it. So either it's the sin, your sin is either punished in Christ or you are yet to pay for your sins, which would take eternity to pay for and you never would completely pay for it. And so the atonement vindicates the holiness and justice of God. It also reveals the greatness of God's love. So just the cross reveals the justice and love of God. The, the God's love is the reason in his grace and his determination to have love and mercy upon us to save us was the whole reason. That love was the reason that Christ went to the cross, to pay for my sin. So the cross shows us two things. God's justice, sin must be paid for. Sin is not a trifle against God. Many times we excuse away sin. Many times... We just uh, we don't think of it as that big a deal, and we get into that mind space where that's easy to do. A lot, I mean, uh, we don't really, every time we sin, stop and think about uh, just how severely Christ was punished for that one little sin. And so, but we see that when we sin, that it is not a trifle against God. God poured out his wrath upon Jesus Christ, all the suffering which he did, and he paid in full. So it shows and reveals God's love. In Romans 5.8, just look down with me. He says, but God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Many have the wrong impression. Um, you know, that God, since God is love, there's no way God would send me to hell. Many people have that wrong impression. And I, I don't want to get into it right now, but... Uh, there's three different ways that men reinvent God, and we will look at that. Maybe I'll, I'll make that uh, a lesson all of its own or bring it up, but it's very interesting uh, how men reinvent God to be someone he's not, just so because it can fit the framework of their comfortability and their accountability. They want a God that they don't have to be accountable to. They want dumb idols that have no power. They, you know, so... Um, 
they redefine God as a God of love and they leave out justice. God is also a God of justice. So God had to deal with sin. But he commendeth his love. If you want the love of God, the love of God is shown in the cross. And that's where the love of God, if you, if you are depending on the love of God, the love of God is through Jesus Christ and the cross. That's the, that's the only place. You're not going to get it outside of that. God's already in uh, a final way has demonstrated, has provided, has given you his love, and that's through the cross. And so we come to the cross of Christ, repent of our sins, and wholly believe on Jesus Christ that died for your sins, every single one of your sins, um, so that you would go unpunished. Now, it also, the atonement also proves the divine authority of the Old Testament scriptures. You know, it was God who had told Israel to set up the system of sacrifice, the system of atonement, the substitutionary death, the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust. And God had set up this system within um, the Old Testament. And it, so we, it wasn't just Israel going rogue and sacrificing because they saw a bunch of uh, idolaters and pagans doing some kind of weird thing. No, God had commissioned them to set up this system of the atonement. So the fact that God had sent Christ to the cross for the atonement of our sins, a substitutionary sacrifice, then we, it authorizes or it shows us the necessity of the Old Testament sacrifices. And then, last, it furnishes the acid test of theological systems. You can really tell where somebody stands in their theology based on their view of the atonement. We're going to look at some false views of the atonement. First of all, you have the governmental view of the atonement. This view holds that sinners can be pardoned without the sacrifice of Christ. All they need to have is just a sorrowness of heart, and they want to uh, just rededicate their life and, and live better life. That's called the governmental that their view of the atonement is that it wasn't necessary at all. Another uh, view of the atonement is the example view. Some people say Christ died on the cross only as an example of his dedication to Christianity, to God, to God's will. And so they'll say there is no sacrifice or substitutionary death. There's no sacrifice for sins in the atonement. Um, then there's the moral view of the atonement. And what that means is this view holds that sin brings no guilt that must be removed and that the death of Christ was merely an exhibition of love. So all of those are false views of the atonement. And you can really tell somebody's just entire belief of truth just based on what they believe about the atonement. Now, here's some correct, the correct nature of the atonement. We need to have an understanding um, and this kind of goes into these categories. But a correct understanding of why this atonement was necessary. The atonement being a sacrificial, substitutionary death of Christ. This is what the atonement is in the New Testament. That is what it is. It's substitutionary. Um, and we can talk about that more. First, you need to understand it had to be that because of God's nature. God's nature uh, of he is both love and he is just. Look at Romans 3, 20, 
5. And we'll be looking at a, a couple of verses there, Romans. There's actually a couple different places where it talks about God being just. Uh, Romans 3, look at Romans 3, verse 4. Well, look at Romans 3, verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So if God had all these promises to Israel, then, and if they didn't believe, does that mean that God's unfaithful to his promises since they didn't believe? Verse 4, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Now, when you understand, God's promises were spiritual promises to his spiritual children. And those whom he has given the promise of salvation and endurance and heaven and hope and all those things, they will be fulfilled. But um, those promises were not to all. And so there were some who, who did not believe. Did that mean that those promises fell away? And that's what he's saying. No, let God be true and every man His promises are true. They are faithful and they will be fulfilled to those who believe. That's a big, big key there. Question. So then he goes on and he questions God's justice again, his, his righteousness. The, the question is, is how can God forgive me but not somebody else and be just and be righteous? Did he just decide to take my sins and sweep them under the rug, but he's going to penalize uh, my neighbor for their sins but not penalize me for my sins? Well, what could you accuse God of if that was the case? You could say that he was not righteous. He's unjust. He, he, he forfeited his justice on me to exercise love, but then on the next person, he was inconsistent. He exercised his justice on them in, instead of his love. So that is the, the question Paul is dealing with. So in verse uh, 25, well, look at verse 24 of chapter 3 being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, we'll talk about that word here in a minute, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. That propitiation is our atonement. God has set forth who? Jesus Christ in verse 24. That's the subject. Verse 24 is Jesus Christ. God has set him forth to be a propitiation, to be our covering. Propitiation uh, in the Greek is, it's a big long Greek word, it's hilastrion, and it means the appeasing or expiating. Appeasement or expiation. God sent Jesus forth to be the mercy seat, to be the means of his appeasement, of his wrath. His wrath has been appeased. Justice has been appeased. Justice has been satisfied. And expiation is removal. So the, my guilt has been removed. Because God's wrath, because justice and the law, what the law demanded that should I be penalized with, has been appeased in the punishment of Jesus Christ, Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary death, because of that, verse 25, through 
Because he, God has set forth Jesus to be propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So what that's saying is God has indeed dealt with my sins in justice. He dealt with them on Jesus Christ as if it were me on the cross, as if it were me perishing, because that's the substitutionary death. That's the atonement. The atonement is Jesus taking your place on the cross for your eternal punishment. And then God being pleased with the payment which he made on the cross. So that way, now we have reconciliation. Now we can declare his righteousness. Now we have God's anger is appeased, and now we have expiation. We have imputed righteousness. Now we are declared righteous in Jesus Christ's righteousness. And so that is the means that we see the nature of God. He must be just and the justifier. So that's what that means, just and justifier. You can kind of put it here. He's just in the uh, payment, and he's the justifier. That means he can forgive me. Justice has been served on me, as if it were me. So, next, we need to understand the nature of the law. The law says this. Now, a lot of these false views... They do not, uh, they, they see the law as something flexible. We've already talked about that. The law is, the, God demands a just recompensation of the law. We see that Hebrews 2, chapter 2, where those, they did not escape. They, they were punished under the just law in the Old Testament. They were punished for what they did, breaking the law. And then Hebrews 2, 2 goes on to say, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Uh, so, if they were punished in the Old Testament for breaking the law, even more now we will be punished for rejecting the command of God to repent and believe. Even more so. We will endure just punishment. Then we need to understand the guilt of sin. The guilt of sin is this denies, there, there's a view that denies objective guilt. Objective guilt requires expiation. Objective guilt means legal guilt. Your legal standing before God. You're out, if you're lost, you're under condemnation, right? Condemnation is a legal term. Condemnation means that not only will you be found guilty, but you're guilty right now. Uh, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the court, uh, it's as if you're already in court every day of your life. You're already condemned. Okay, so... Uh, many times I'll say, all you have to do to go to hell is do nothing. Because you're already condemned. Okay, so you're already in the state of condemnation. In the eyes of the law, uh, you are already condemned. There's a guilt of sin. So uh, many, many teach, oh, well, no, you're fine. You don't have the guilt. You don't have an objective guilt. However, the Bible teaches us that the atonement must remove the guilt that was worthy of us having wrath. 
John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And that abideth is continual. It's continual. It's not just one time. God gave you all kinds of wrath, and now you have to go and lick your wounds for eternity. God's wrath will abide on you. It will remain on you. It will stay on you. Um, Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of obedience. So we need to understand uh, when we start looking at the atonement, we need to understand God's nature. We need to understand uh, the nature of the law. And we need to understand uh, next the substitutionary nature. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Oh, I need to hurry. Isaiah, uh, just real quickly, you don't need to turn there. But, but listen to what, what Isaiah 53, 4, verse 6 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Those scriptures teach Jesus Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. He took it for us. He took it for you. It needs to be individually you. It's not mankind. It's not the whole world. It's not the Gentiles. It's, not, it's you personally that has Jesus suffered for the sins which you've committed against God. You and you alone. Um, sometimes it's, it's easy to get our eyes off ourselves and then just start judging our goodness by how good others are. And so we look around to find moral value. We, find, we look around to make moral judgment about ourselves. But instead of looking around, I mean, the Bible's concluded all under sin. You're, 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 you're comparing yourself to a person on a losing team. So you need to look to the word of God. And we see from the word of God that my sins, that if I die in my sins, I will be cast into the lake of fire, paying for those sins for eternal, eternally. But Jesus paid for them, if you believe. So that's the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ um, so we need to understand that's what the atonement is. The atonement, I mean, it, it, it's a big subject. Like I said, this is, it really needs more than just this one little sitting. But the atonement is the literal mercy seat. It's our covering. It's our restoration to God. But we also need to see that the atonement is the substitutionary. Here's the big one. I'll just underline this one. I keep coming back to this one. If you say, what's the atonement? It's that. The sacrificial, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement in the Old Testament, pointed to the cross. It was a lamb that was slain, innocent lamb. The priest had to go in once a year, and this will help you in Hebrews too, and that he would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. 
That was Yom, Yom Kippur. That's sacrificial. He had to die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. God has made that a requirement that it's the innocent for the guilty. And he's made that requirement. It's pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices and the substitutionary. You have to include that in the atonement because it is the innocent for the guilty. And Jesus went willingly to the cross. And that's what Isaiah was saying. Like he went dumb before his shearers and he went willingly and took us and took our grief upon him as our substitute. So we understand the price of the atonement. Christ paid the penalty we owe. Galatians 3.13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written, curse is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus also had to suffer eternal, eternal punishment. God or Jesus suffered what I would have suffered for an eternity. He suffered in six hours. So it had to be God. Only God can do that. And that's another big proof of Jesus's deity and his humanity. And he also had to be a man. A man, only human, could be the second Adam. Only the human could go to the cross as my true representative and take the wrath of God and suffer as I would have suffered. So Jesus had to be a man and he had to be God in order to do those two things. So the atonement shows us that God, uh, that Jesus had to be God and Man, to suffer the equivalent. It's the justice we owed, the death we owed, and the suffering we owed. Um, the application of the atonement. Now we get down to particular. And then this is a big subject, particular, not general. Uh, you know the doctrines of grace. It's the L and tulip. Uh, so honestly, that, that's a much bigger subject. But here, here's some thoughts I want to give you with, with the atonement. First of all, there's the partial general atonement. So there's three theories with the atonement. I say that it's particular, not general, but there's a third one. It's called partial general. The partial general says that Christ died for the Adamic sin. He, had, he died for the Adamic nature. And um, so that way, that the only reason that they say that is so that way babies can go to heaven. That's the only reason they have a partial general atonement. Okay, so they say, yeah, we, we agree that Jesus didn't die for everybody's sins, but he did die for the edemic nature. Because if you remember, uh, the edemic nature, there was an imputed guilt with Adam. There is, we were born into a sin nature. And so they come up with this. So the problem is, is the Bible doesn't teach that, nor do you have to... Uh, go to that view in order for babies to go to heaven. Uh, babies go to heaven in other ways. I mean, we can see that and throughout scriptures. You have the, fit, the vessels fitted for mercy versus destruction. Only the, the elect will be in saved or will be in heaven. So all of God's elect will be there. And so there's other places we don't have time to, to look, but we know that babies and those who do not 
understand that they're transgressing God and willful disobedience and rebellion. They don't, they don't have the, you know, people that don't have the mental capacity to do that. Um, I do believe the Lord takes home to be with him, and that includes infants. And um, I don't have time now to teach you that, but maybe that, that could be another Sunday school lesson. But you don't need to have a partial general atonement for that because you're denying scriptures in other places. Uh, it denies the scriptures that teaches particular atonement. Now, general atonement is this, that Jesus went to the cross and he paid for everybody's sins in the whole world, whoever is born, that he died for their sins. Now, there's things wrong with that view and all humility and not badgering people or being puffed up with pride, I want to give you some objections to that kind of view. Um, well, first, there's two extremes. Either, if you believe that view, either every person has to be saved and no one goes to hell with the general atonement. If Jesus paid for everybody's sin, that means everybody must go to heaven. That's that's a view you must have if you go with general atonement. Or God is unjust in punishing people for their sins twice. If God punished Jesus Christ for the sins of all the world, then what about the sins of the people who go to hell to pay for those? That means that God is punishing two people for the same crime. It's called double jeopardy. God is, not go- God is just. He is not going to punish Jesus Christ for my sin and then send me to hell to pay for my sin at the same time. So you have to, with the general atonement, if Jesus died for the sins of everybody who's ever been born, then you must go with those two views. Either everybody's going to heaven or God is unjust in punishing two people for the same crime. So, those are the two objections. And the thing is, is you cannot obligate God to save. This would mean grace is not grace. You do not find gospel preachers telling every single person that they preach to that Christ died for their sins. Rather, that Christ is the Savior of sinners who repent and believe the gospel. That's the true way that you preach the gospel. He is your Savior if you repent and believe the gospel. He did pay for your sins if you repent and believe the gospel. The reason sinners do not come to Jesus Christ has nothing to do with the atonement. It has to do with their own sin. It has to do with their own lust. It has to do with their own decision. They do not want the light. They want to remain in their darkness. They do not want to be reproved. They do not want to be corrected. They do not want to be accountable to God for their action. They want to be their own God. They want to call their own shots. They don't want to submit to anybody's lordship but their own. You submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ uh, with salvation. No one's saved who does not submit to his lordship. No one. If, if, If you are professing Jesus Christ and you've not submitted to Jesus Christ's lordship, that's not salvation. That's just a false profession. You must submit. There's going to be a fear that works in your heart. There's going to be a fear with salvation, a godly sorrow, a fear. You're going to see God in a whole new way. You're going to see him as 
the God of wrath, who is, you're just a heartbeat away from spending eternal eternity in hell. But God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our God is great. He's a, he does things greatly. God saves greatly. God will recompense justice greatly. Everything he does is great and beyond our comprehension. All right, so lemon atonement. I know, I'm hurrying. All right, so the lemon atonement means that Jesus Christ died for the elect and for the elect only. Christ did not die for any person who will ultimately die and perish in hell. That's what limited atonement means, particular. It's the same thing. There will be no person in hell that Christ died for. And there will be no person in heaven that Christ did not die for. Another way of saying that, there will be no elect in hell. And there will be no non-elect in heaven. That there was a particular atonement a particular people that Jesus died for. Because anything else is contradictory. The general, the partial general, any of those things. It's not scriptural. Not only do you have to back away because general and, and partial general uh, violate scripture, the scriptures don't teach it. It does teach the particular atonement. And it doesn't violate. So there's two big reasons. Now, we may not understand it, uh, and certainly we're not. We're going to understand it all. But at the end of the day, when we look at particular atonement, we understand particular atonement. You talk about a heightened sense of security in God and his power and his ability to keep us by his power. I mean, it just, and once you start understanding that Jesus Christ had you on his mind when he died for you and every sin that you committed yesterday, today, or tomorrow, that he died for you to secure your salvation, not just in this life to have victory, but victory over the grave, then you're going to be forever and ever in glory with him, singing hallelujah. And the whole fact was is that he did not do it because of something good in you, but by his grace he has saved us. At the end of the day, there's nothing in us which God has given us this gift of love, redemption, the atonement, the covering, the recovery, and the eternal life. There's nothing good in me. All the goodness is in him. So all of my focus, my heart, my thanks, my gratitude, all is to him. It can't be, oh, I'm glad I did this. Or, I'm glad I, you know, I'm glad. You, you can't really pat yourself on the back for what God has given you. As a grace. So the limited atonement. Now think about this. Uh, it's proved both logically and scripturally. Alright. Limited atonement is the only theory that makes the death of Christ truly substitutionary. That's a lot. But think about that. Particular atonement is the only view that makes Jesus Christ substitutionary death real. Because if Jesus Christ died in the place of someone, it must have been someone he died in the place of. Not just someone who might come, it was someone who particularly is coming. 
okay? Like, think of substitutionary, or a substitute teacher. Are you a substitute teacher, really, if you're not substituting for another teacher? No. If you're not doing anything, if, 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 you have, if you have 10 teachers who are teachers and then you have a substitute teacher who's on staff who's just waiting around for somebody to get sick, is that teacher really being a substitute at that point? No. There's nobody he's substituting for. It's you substitute by action. Okay? And the teacher has to be gone before that substitute comes. Jesus died a substitutionary death for particular people. Okay? So, that's the only theory. Particular atonement is the only theory that makes sense with a substitutionary death. It can't be a general death for everybody because if they don't come, then he really wasn't the substitute. Does that make sense? If they don't come, then he can't be a substitute. But he can be a substitute for those who do come and who will come. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. All that the Father giveth me will come to me. And he died a substitutionary death. There's more logical proof, but scriptural proof. Um, uh, we got a whole lot here, but let me see here. Do I have anything of that? Okay. So we've got logical and scriptural. Uh, scriptural proof, Isaiah 53, 11, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Notice it did not say in Isaiah 53, 11, that he shall justify all. It says he shall justify many. Uh, it says that his servant, that he shall be satisfied with the travail of Jesus' soul, and by his knowledge, Jesus' knowledge, his righteous servant will justify many. It didn't say all, many. What that means is that Jesus bore the iniquities of the justified only. That's it. Those who would be justified, that is who Jesus died for. That's who he bore the iniquities of. Uh, John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So, if Jesus died for all the sins of everybody who would ever be born, are lost people his friends? What about those who come in, at the end of the days and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prosify in thy name? Did we not do all these marvelous works? Did we not do all these? What does Jesus say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me who work iniquity, I never knew you. Would you say that that person is Jesus' friend? No. But the Bible says that Jesus laid down his life for his friends. That's who he laid down his life for, are his friends, not, his, not the ones who would reject him. So you can't have a general atonement. You can't have Jesus laying down his life for the entire world if these people are rejecting him and not being his friends because who did he lay down his life for? His friends. <laughs> he is the sanctifier of the sanctified and he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Whom Jesus died for, paid for on the cross with his own blood. 
He sanctifies us. He separates us. He brings us to him. And he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. But at the end of the day, he says, to those, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. So he did not lay down his life for those people. He couldn't have. Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God delivered up his son for none except those that he gives all other spiritual blessings to. So if God spared not his son, okay, what does that mean? He died on the cross, paying for the sins. God spared not his son. How shall he not also give us freely all things? And those all things, if you look in there in the context, that's all the other spiritual blessings that God gives. Does God give spiritual blessings to lost people? No. Well, does that, does that mean that God did not spare his son for the whole world, the general, the general population? Well, if he did, he'd have to give spiritual blessings to the whole world. So Romans 8 says that he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? That all is all who he has called. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. That is who the spiritual blessings that God has is through Christ to us, the called. That also is particular atonement. That also by scripture, we have so many, so many proofs that the Bible teaches a particular atonement, that Jesus knew who he was dying for. Last is the world. Where, where, where do you, for God so loved the world. And then in 1 John 2, 2, it says, And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what do you do with that? Well, John 3.16 defines world as cosmos. Now, can the world mean the entire world and all the people in it? It can. Can the world mean the, all the various nations of the world? It can. Can the world mean all the different nationalities and tongues and languages and all types of people? It can. When do you define world as world? What, how do you define world as world? You define it in context. Okay? The word world used in these verses must be defined by context. Rarely, if ever, does it mean all men without exception. World means that it is salvation for all kinds of men, not just the nation of Israel. We have to realize the push in the New Testament that a lot of the Jews were upset that Gentiles were being extended mercy. They, they weren't understanding the prophets. We see this struggle over and over and over. Paul dealt with it a lot. Yes, I'm preaching to the Gentiles. Stop beating me. Stop persecuting me. I mean, he was fine in Jerusalem until he, until, he started, until he brought a Gentile with him. That is the Jews and Gentiles. God is the justifier of both. Is he not both God? Is he God of the Jews all only? No, he's God of the Gentiles as well. Revelation 7, 9 says this, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man can number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. 
That's what that means. For God so loved the world, all nations, all kindreds, all kinds, all tongues. He's not just the God of the Jews only, the God of the Hebrews only, but he's also the God of the Gentiles. He is the God of the Most High. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson. Lord, we do pray your blessing and that you be glorified and honored today. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.